But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Okay, but what if you did want to get more coffee into your life? Well, good news for you, folks. We have a brand new sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show. It is one run-your-mouth coffee free speech. Never tasted so good. The hope is that the delicious roast-to-order coffee provides you with the fuel. Yes, you need to stand up to censorship and proudly run your mouth with amazing coffee to help you truly speak freely from 12-ounce bags up to 2-pound bags all of the coffee from the amazing Run Your Mouth Coffee is roasted to order after roasting delivery. It takes around two to five days, meaning that you will receive fresh roasted coffee made for you at peak flavor. And all coffee varieties are available both in ground and whole bean. From espresso yourself, speak freely, mind changer, pumpkin persuasion, and rebellion beans, Run Your Mouth Coffee has some delicious coffee just in store for you. And folks, if you are a listener of The Brian Nichols Show, you can use code NICHOLS at checkout and get 10% off your order. So head over to Run Your Mouth Coffee. Make sure you use code Nichols at checkout. Get 10% off your order and run your mouth today. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Alrighty, folks, welcome to another phenomenal episode of The Brian Nichols Show. You had the chance to hear uh, the story of Martha Bueno, who is running for uh, Miami-Dade District 10 City Council down there in the great state of Florida on yesterday's candidate special on our new Sunday special series here on The Brian Nichols Show. Today, though, you are returning to the show to hear, yes, our tradition of our three episodes here, starting off on Monday with... Frederick M. Lawrence, who is an American lawyer, civil rights scholar, and 10th secretary and CEO of Phi Beta Kappa Society, the nation's first and most prestigious honor society founded back in 1776. Now, Mr. Lawrence is a distinguished lecturer at the Georgetown Law Center and has previously served as president of Brandeis University, dean of George Washington University Law School, and a visiting professor and senior research scholar at Yale Law School. He was elected to the American Philosophical Society in 2018 and the American Law Institute in 1999. He received the 2019 Ernest L. Boyer Award from the New Americans Colleges and Universities and the Council of College of Arts and Sciences Arts and Science Advocacy Award in 2018. And he's been focusing most of his career uh, on that of free speech on college campuses, the importance of maintaining a civil dialogue and how we should deal with that speech out there, which is considered to be, yes, hate speech. So a a very important conversation and one I dare say leaves you educated, enlightened and informed. So that being said, on to the show, Frederick M. Lawrence here on The Brian Nichols Show. Good to be with you, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me, Fred. So you are, sir, the... 10th Secretary and CEO of Phi Beta Kappa Society, the nation's first and most prestigious honor society, which yours truly here is actually a member of from the class of 2014. So welcome, first and foremost, to the Brian Nichols Show. Let's do an introduction. Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, what is this prestigious organization? And uh, Fred, uh, you find yourself as the now uh, 10th Secretary and CEO of the organization. Uh, how did you find yourself gracing this organization today? 
Well, so a little ba- little background on Phi Beta Kappa. Phi Beta Kappa is almost literally as old as a nation. We were founded in December of 1776 by five undergraduates on the campus of the College of William and Mary. They wanted to come up with a undergraduate uh, debating society, discussion society that would take on hard issues and would recognize the most accomplished students in liberal arts and science education, and that's what we're still doing 244 years later. The questions have broadened. Uh, the membership has broadened from five male undergraduates at one college. We now have about 500,000 members uh, worldwide, 290 campuses like Elmira College, where you went, uh, which have chapters. Uh, Phi Beta Kappa recognizes the most accomplished liberal arts and sciences students. That's what most people think of us doing. What we also do is advocate for the liberal arts and sciences, by which I mean work up on Capitol Hill for funding for higher education, for funding to support the arts and humanities. But we also work on campuses themselves that right now are faced with all sorts of challenges, and some of those bespeak the nature and robustness of their liberal arts program. And obviously, for your experience in in the uh, your professional career, it's in the the law of, of focusing on in, in many cases free speech on campuses. And right now, that's kind of at the forefront of a lot of people's uh, a lot of people's minds because they're they're seeing the the quote unquote the culture wars, if you will. Um, but on college campuses, we actually see this firsthand where it is hard sometimes to have these conversations about some very tough topics. So let's kind of maybe rewind. What got you focused specifically starting out into this world of uh, of free speech on college campus? Interestingly, what got me started in the area of free speech is a whole other aspect of my research. Maybe I'll come back another time. We'll talk about that. But I've been very involved in researching hate crimes and advocating for federal hate crimes testified before Congress a number of times in that. I wrote an article back in the early 1990s on the case for enhanced punishment of racially motivated violence. And I wrote a footnote in that article that said, now there are complicated issues of free speech here about whether you're punishing expression or thought on the one hand, criminal behavior on the other, and somebody ought to write an article about that. And I thought to myself, maybe that should be me. (laughs) And so that got me into the free speech area. So right along in my hate crimes work, I did a lot of work on the nature of free expression and free speech. Then fast forward, when I become a law school dean and then ultimately a university president, I'm taking those issues from my scholarship and applying them to my actual work on campus, which got me very involved in issues of free speech on campus. So when you're on campus, what were you finding were some of the main issues that were being raised up in terms of uh, in terms of this this free speech issue? Where was it more political speech or? I think there is a number of things. Part of it is that and. Let me interrupt myself a second. This is not just a campus issue. You know, people say to me, how can such and such an issue be taking place on campus? I usually say, as opposed to where, it's taking place throughout the society, but campuses in some ways really funnel these issues. They become a touchstone to these issues. So I I used to say only half tongue in cheek. Uh, They're the same issues as everybody else. We just get them more. We do them them bigger uh, because of all the focus on thought and ideas and expression. So I think one major issue is the difference between disagreeing with someone and that person's right to express that view. And that that is true on multiple sides. And I think there's a sense that if I really, really disagree with somebody, that I don't want to hear that view. Now, that is, is in and of itself, that is antithetical to a liberal education. The whole idea of a liberal education is that you will be exposed to lots of views. 
You don't need to know the ones you already think, although it's good to have those reinforced a little bit, but it's better to have them challenged. That's where the real learning takes place. On the other hand, there are words that actually threaten you. Those are out of bounds. And those can be precluded, not just on campus, in a society. Those are called true threats. Those can be criminalized. Now it gets interesting. What happens in between? What about words that are not true threats that you wouldn't want to restrict, but they're not just part of the normal conversation like you and I are having? They're, in fact, hurtful to a point of actually disrupting somebody's ability to take part in the community. What do you want to do about those? So I think that's a bona fide hard issue, and that's the one we have to wrestle with. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I guess right now, that's – I. We're seeing it, right? And I, I, I guess I'm at a loss for words because you just encapsulated exactly what has been the primary issue is how do we address this? And we're seeing, do we go through the marketplace or do we through go, go through the, the mouthpiece of government? And that's really leading to this national conversation because then the, the, the inevitable question is, okay, well, then who is going to be the ones determining what is and is not right back to the point we're making that right. middle ground. And then that's where that slippery slope really comes in. So I guess, how do we juggle the the understanding that that, I, to quote uh, Spider-Man, with that great power is going to come <laughs> much great responsibility? Well, uh, it's a great quote. Uh, always happy to hear Spider-Man. But in particular, what it does say is if you do have the power to involve uh, a conversation, be involved in the conversation. How should you use it? Um, I'll, I'll quote an, someone who's right up there with uh, Spider-Man, and that's my great hero, uh, Justice Louis, Louis Brandeis. Uh, Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, in a in a fairly famous dissenting opinion, said that in the absence of incitement of imminent lawless activity, the answer to bad speech is not enforced silence; it's more speech. Now, normally, when you hear that. That just means that unless somebody is actually inciting violence, unless somebody is inciting a, a crime that's going to happen in the very near term, then you don't silence them. But that last part about the answer is more speech, I don't think we paid enough attention to. I understand that piece to actually be not just sort of a kicker at the end of an aphorism. That's actually a moral obligation, that the community has to respond. So when you have certain kinds of expression on campus, I think it becomes incumbent on the university and its leadership sometimes to weigh in. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Richard Spencer, pretty well-known white supremacist, uh, for a while was making the run of college campuses. And I think to a certain extent, this is what's known in the trade as a sucker punch tour, um, where you go to a campus and you really want to go for the purpose of being excluded. And then you've got an issue because you can say they wouldn't let me speak. So what a number of campuses did quite intelligently, they let them speak all right, but they had counter-programming. The president or the chancellor of the university made a statement of his or her own, thinking of University of Florida as a really good example of this, where the president of the University of Florida said what he has said in the past and what he's likely to say here is antithetical to the values of this campus. He, he is entitled to say it, but it's antithetical to these values. He had a counter-event. And then my favorite part, never underestimate, Brian, the role of humor as a way to, to, to deflate certain things. It doesn't solve everything in certain situations. It's inappropriate. But where it's appropriate, you know, keep your eyes on the, on, on the prize. Um, what they did in Florida, one of the campus pubs in Gainesville put out a, 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 a flyer that said that anyone who turned in two unused tickets to the Richard Spencer event got a free pitcher of beer. 
You see, it turns out there's a First Amendment right to speak. There's no First Amendment right to have anybody show up and listen to you. Um, so all of these were ways of saying, the serious ones, the kind of fun ones, they're all ways of saying, sure, you have a right to speak, but don't expect other people not to speak also. Mm. And some of those people are going to criticize you, and some of them are going to criticize you quite, quite heavily. Yeah. Not only, not well, right there, not only should we be expecting criticism in, in many instances, but it should be expected. It should be demanded. Um, I had a, a professor of my show, Professor Kevin Vallier, um, and he he wrote a book talking about trust and how important it is to focus on building trust in our society right now, but how it's it's been very difficult actually to build trust because we really haven't been able to engage in good faith dialogue. And I think it comes with us first having a, a understanding of well, what is, you know, to be a considered a good faith dialogue. And I think understanding that people like Richard Spencer, like it's toxic, but when you go ahead and you mute, you hit the mute button on society, then people say, well, why was he muted? And then they start to look more into it and it puts you underground. So that's, I guess the other uh, side of the question, I'll hear folks out there say, well, if you start to push him away and you start to, to bury the ideas of people like this, well, wouldn't it push more people to get uh, radicalized? So how do we deal with the, the underground, I guess, portion of uh, when we try to limit this toxicity of folks like the Richard Spencers and, and, and even on the, the other side, right? You look at the um, the Antifa protests from the entire summer and a lot of those folks also radicalized, but also pushed into their, their bubbles. I think it's important, as I say, on campus for the for the administration to pick its spots. You know, you as a president of a university, you do not want to be calling First Amendment balls and strikes on a daily basis. Um, right. the, your, your goal is to try to make sure this conversation does bubble up from the from the community mm -hmm. on up. That is the idea. But I think here, here's here's the key piece. I think that free speech is essential to a self-governing society, to a free society. But it does exact a cost in order to give that benefit. So far, so good. It also, I believe, is true that that cost often does not fall equally on all members of the society. Some members of the community are bearing more than their fair share of that cost. Give you an example it's you know quite personal to me uh, somebody asked me after the charlottesville episode uh when the 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 thugs with the tiki torches and their parade were saying jews will not replace us did i feel threatened by that personally you know not just in a in, you know picking an example where it's my group that's involved as a jewish american so did i feel threatened by that and i said no i thought they're a bunch of knuckleheads i thought they were potentially dangerous uh, to the whole community and i hope there would be a police presence tragically it was an actual loss of life in that situation. But no, did I as a Jew feel threatened? No. Would my father have felt threatened by that? Probably would have felt a little creeped out. Right. What about right. my grandfather? My grandfather would have been terrified. So this is all contextual. You know, I, I am someone who is the uh, grandson or on one side great-grandson of people who came to this country. I served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. I, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable in the legal uh, world in this society. But suppose you're not. Suppose your situation is a little different from that. Uh, when Richard Spencer speaks on campus, it's easy for me to say, hey, that thing that the pub did in Gainesville, that was great. African-American student, not so much. It, it hits that student in an entirely different way. This is still, to me, not an argument for repressing speech, but it right. is an, an obligation to, to validate that feeling from those students. So th this is where it seems to me that the two extreme positions have both got it wrong. The one that says, if I 
feel hurt by this speech. I want to silence it. I don't buy that. But the one that says, well, go ahead and mix it up. You know, don't let's just, let's just see what happens. That, that, that has nothing to do with educational philosophy. I remember having a discussion with somebody one time who said something about, you know, why, why are these students such snowflakes? And I said, you know, my late mother taught for 40 years and she would have never let anyone be rude to her students. And that's what you just did. That's just rude. That's not how educators speak. So let's talk about how educators speak. Why would somebody respond in a way feeling harmed by that? Why would somebody who hears a white supremacist feel hurt and disempowered by that? Well, you know, I, I think there are lots of good answers to that. And I think it's pretty obvious why somebody would. And I'm happy to have that discussion with somebody about the history of white supremacy in this country and why it would make a student of color feel that way. So again, that doesn't get me to the point of saying that's why he can't speak. But to just say, just, just let it rock. Everybody gets to say something and who cares? Totally decontextualizes the, the matter, which has a very fraught context. Yeah, yeah. Context for sure is so important, especially when we're having these kind of conversations. Um, and, you know, going back to kind of my experience in, in the private sector in sales, uh, it is important to enter into conversations uh, willing to enter in a good faith dialogue, trying to understand the people you're talking to. Because if you're coming in with, you know, I have the perfect solution in place, and I know I do without knowing what the real problem is of the person you're talking to, well, then you're just making white noise. So I guess I'm going to kind of take it and frame it in this way. Mm -hmm. We're looking out there. There's a lot of people out there who I would say both on the left and the right of our world nowadays. And goodness, not, maybe not even political, just out there saying, well, Maybe we should have um, some some curtails of speech. So how do we tell these people out there that we need to be able to, to the point, maybe not look at using government to confine speech, but rather the point we were making before, raise up more speech. How do we make that argument and how do we give them the actual platforms or the tools to engage in, in uh, I guess, curating more speech in this case? One of the reasons I like talking about this in the context of college campus is that we're in the wheelhouse of educating. That's what we do. This is what we're supposed to be about. So, so how do we create space on a college campus for these difficult conversations? Um, you know, on, an, on another occasion, we can talk about how you do this in the society at large. It's a little more complicated in the society at large. Um, but on campus, I think you, you know, I wrote a little piece called The Rules of Vigorous Civility. And vigorous civility is supposed to sound like an oxymoron. It's really not an oxymoron. There's been this... <laughs> That's, that's not serious and vigorous and robust about civil discussion. And there is nothing uncivil about serious, uh, vigorous analysis. You can be civil and vigorous at the same time. So vigorous civility uh, suggests that the, that the first thing, you know, when we enter into a difficult conversation, that we make sure that we disagree with people, but we don't delegitimize people. When you disagree with somebody, you actually validate that person's uh, position you validate that person as a part of the community, and then you disagree with the premise of what that person said. In an interesting way, disagreement is actually community building, because here we are sitting here talking to each other, and we're not going to agree on everything, but but we're talking, and we're actually building a little community here. Um, and others hopefully listen to this and take part in this discussion, and we're building a community. As opposed to delegitimizing, when I delegitimize you, as opposed to saying I disagree with your ideas, when I delegitimize you, I say you have no place here. You don't belong here. I don't have to listen to you. I don't want to listen to you. And your views don't count. They don't matter. That's community destroying. So we have to work on disagreeing, even 
vigorously disagreeing, but not delegitimizing. The, the second rule of vigorous civility, which is related, but, but slightly different, is that when we have these difficult conversations, we at least begin with, a, uh, an, with an understanding that we will question people's ideas, but not their motives. Now, I'm not naive. Sometimes people's motives should be questioned. There are some people who are up to no good. But don't start with that. Don't start with, with that assumption. And certainly in a university campus, don't start with that assumption. You know, even as a university president, where there are sometimes people who make me crazy, um, most people don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, good, today's the day I get to destroy the university. That's really not what they want to do. They really are doing what they think is best for the university. It may just be very different from what you want. So you begin by questioning their ideas, not their motives. The third one, which is going to sound like the simplest, but bear with me, I think it's the most important, is that when we have controversial, difficult conversations, they should begin with a forced exercise of articulating common ground. Have you noticed in political debates that one of the standard questions now they'll ask candidates is, say something complimentary about the other? Mm, yes. And typically, uh, the can candidates seem flustered by this, as if it's so difficult to say something complimentary about the other. And yep. then they will say something totally off the merits. They'll say he or she is a good parent or a good, uh, you know, good child to their, to their parents, um, as if they couldn't possibly compliment something about their political views, where we could say there's something that we have, have in common here. Um, when we talk about that search for common ground, the, the example I'll always think of was a marvelous op-ed in the New York Times some years ago that was co-authored by a pro-life advocate and a pro-choice advocate. And they began in the quite provocative way with saying, we wanted to see what we had in common. We do not agree on the fundamental issue of abortion. One of us believes that life begins at conception. She believes that abortion is murder. The other of us believes that life begins at birth. She believes that abortion is fundamentally about a woman's right to choose her reproductive freedom and the use of her body. We will not agree on that. But we wanted to see if we could write 800 words in which we agree. And they wrote about adoption. They wrote about health education, particularly for young women in underserved communities. And the piece was very powerful for the fact that they said, we can start this conversation not on the thing we disagree about, which is probably going to lead us to stop talking to each other, but on all the common ground that we can agree on. So I think a little bit of vigorous civility would go a long way on our college campuses, and I don't doubt for a second that it would be a little awkward. That's why I use the term forced exercise of, uh, of stating common ground. But, but get into that habit of look at the person you really disagree with and say, well, here are five important points of this that we actually agree on. Yeah, well, and I think that's why... If you look at the, the greater movement that I find myself a part of, this greater libertarian, conservatarian, conservative world, we find folks out there like the Tulsi Gabbards or the Andrew Yangs of the world, and I think we, we find them to be very approachable because they're willing to enter into conversations, in, in often good faith conversations. I mean, there was a, a group of libertarians who were rapidly supporting Andrew Yang, and and as a libertarian, I, I found that funny because um, of the universal mm -hmm. basic income, but, you know, that spoke mm -hmm. to, he, he was willing to have a conversation, and he wasn't going out of his way to say, you're not just uh, wrong, you're a bad person, but rather trying to enter into a conversation and to, to find that common ground where we were able to maybe look for some solutions, and I think, you know, as we are wrapping up the episode, I think right now, America, society by and large, 
they are looking for solutions. We're looking for a way out. Um, and right now, I think college campuses are maybe a good opportunity for us to start to lay some some groundwork again of, of maybe the, the blueprints of how to engage in some civil discourse once again. So I guess as we're moving forward in the, the battle of free speech, uh, where where can we see this conversation going? I know right now, you know, with uh, President Biden um, and, and his administration, uh, you know, there's been a little bit different approach to how we're approaching some of these issues. So I guess just from your perspective, where do you think you, you see the nation going in the next couple of years as we approach free speech from a college campus perspective? I think it should be highly decentralized. I think different campuses will try different things. I think there is no simple model on this, but it does call for engagement. It does call for engagement by faculty, by administrators, by students. You used the word trust before. That's a good word. Uh, we have to we have to start with a positive trust in the other. Uh, look, let's be honest. We're we're living through a time when trust is in short supply. Oh, to say so, the least. <laughs> so we we need to sort of cobble it together on the campus community as a place to start. Uh, not because the campus is a microcosm of the whole world. In some ways, it's the best place for this to take place. If we can't do this on campus, then I, I am fearful about our our future as a society. Um, if we can do it on campus, and I believe we can, uh, even in this time through which we are living, then I believe we have a blueprint, as you say. We have a model for beginning to, to move forward. Um, here, here's a, here, here are three. As quick examples that to me are the, that I said, what will this look up as, as you know, how would this, what, what will this look? Uh, one is the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, no one could have disagreed more in their opinions. Um, and yet at the same time, there was, there was a deep personal friendship there. You could tell that when Scalia passed, uh, it really hurt Justice Ginsburg. Um, and when Justice Ginsburg's uh, husband passed away, the Scalia's were very, um, Important to Justice Ginsburg on that, mm -hmm. so that, that's one. <clears throat> Second, that many of uh, your listeners will remember is that great moment in the 2008 campaign when one of the people at a rally that uh, Senator McCain was holding said that President Obama, uh, then Senator Obama, was this, that, or the other thing, and and you could tell that in that moment McCain just spoke from his heart. It just you know nobody had road tested that, nobody scripted that. He said, "No man, no man." Senator Obama is a good man. Uh, he and I disagree on many things. That came from a deep play. That's John McCain, right? That was that was the essence of John McCain. Um, and, and maybe my favorite, because I'm most closely related to it, um, my law school mentor, Charles Black, um, who was one of the great uh, legal theorists for the desegregation opinions and for ju judicial activism, used to debate the late uh, Alex Bickle uh, endlessly. Bickle was one of the advocates for passive virtues of the court and judicial um, limitation. So they debated endlessly. Um, when Bickle passed away, Black wrote an article in the Yale Law Journal in his memory, and he said, Bickle and I agreed on everything except for our opinions. And to me, that expression captures it. We have to have people in our lives with whom we agree on on the fundamental things, the important things that make us a society, even if we don't agree on our opinions. Right now, we are on the verge of becoming terribly tribal, where if I disagree with your opinions, I have to disagree with everything else about you, and frankly, I don't like you very much. You cannot have a civilized society that way. So we've got to get back to the world of Black and Bickle, back to the world of Ginsburg and Scalia, um, and back to what John McCain tried to teach us, that 
you could be running for office against somebody and still talk to his ultimate decency and dignity. And if we want and to see this conversation want... continued, we can make sure that folks are pointed over towards your podcast, which is Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. It's featuring in-depth conversations with Phi Beta Kappa uh, visiting scholars. Uh, so where can folks go ahead and follow that? Go ahead and follow that. Yeah, we would love to have them. If you go to pbk.org, um, it will take you to the Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa, or for that matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa is the full name. Uh, we have wonderful interviews with some of our visiting scholars, other leading intellectuals. Uh, it's one of the, my favorite parts of the week is doing those interviews, and I know how much you enjoy this opportunity as well. And what a pleasure it's been to be on the other side of the mic with you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Frederick M. Lawrence, CEO and 10th Secretary of Phi Beta Kappa. Thank you so much for joining the Brian Nichols Show. Great being with you, Brian. E-A-B-L-E-S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil is your answer to your prayers. The Ebels story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines. But Ebels helps more than just migraines. From managing chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, Ebels is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs. And yours truly, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, can indeed vouch for the quality of Ebels. Having a herniated disc in my back, Whew. coupled with years of sports injuries, I was struggling to find something, anything to help manage my pain. That is until Ebels. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil and Ebels Freeze Gel easily stand above all the competition. And right now, Ebels is offering a special discount to all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience on all orders. All you have to do is head to Ebels.com and use promo code TB. NS, the Brian Nichols Show, right? TBNS at checkout. That's it. Discount applied. Again, the code is TBNS at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality CBD on the market. One more time, it is code TBNS at checkout. Alrighty, folks. That's an hour about my conversation with Frederick M. Lawrence, 10th Secretary and current CEO of Phi Beta Kappa. Thank you for joining the Brian Nichols Show, folks. And if you enjoy the show, well, as always, please do me a favor. Be sure to share today's episode with some family and friends. And if you enjoyed the episode, particularly, make sure you go ahead and tag me at B Nichols Liberty. Twitter, FacebookMinds.com, or Parlor.com. And if you want to go ahead and say, well, hello, email me, Brian at BrianNicholsShow.com. And as one final ask for uh, this episode, folks, you know what it's going to be. I ask for that quick five-star rating and review. It's a quick two minutes. Head over to Apple Podcasts and uh, give us that quick five-star rating and review. It does help the Brian Nichols Show move up the rankings, reach more people, and helps us have uh, more of these important conversations reaching people's inboxes. And with that being said, on Wednesday, Wednesday, we are continuing these important conversations with Anna Ziegler from The Federalist talking about Ron DeSantis. And who is Ron DeSantis? He is a name definitely rising through the ranks as potential 2024 presidential candidates for the GOP. So let's get to learn who Ron DeSantis is and really a first national profile. Uh, it was a great opportunity for Anna to introduce us to Ron DeSantis, a little bit about his uh, background, but also how has Ron approached, uh, I say Ron as if I know him firsthand, Governor DeSantis, how has Governor DeSantis approached uh, the the COVID-19 lockdowns in Florida and how has that really panned out? I think you know where we might be going with there uh, in that conversation, but as always, it's a fantastic conversation to dig into nonetheless. So with that being said, thank you folks for joining us here on today's episode. So with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Frederick M. Lawrence. We'll see you Wednesday. 
Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.